Christ and welcome to Concord Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by His inerrant word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter confessed very boldly of Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less, all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We continue our studies in the Augsburg Confession with Article 24, the Mass. I loved when I was in the parish where a former Catholic would always reference our time of worship as the Mass. Of course, good Lutherans would always say back to him, no, 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 we're not Catholic, we don't have Mass, we just worship. And I would point them often to this article where it says explicitly, the Mass is held in high regard among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. It usually would put them kind of back in their seat, not sure what to do. It's another example of how the Concordians were not interested in recreating everything, but wanted to keep all the practices and everything they confessed according to God's word and the gospel at the center, which is why we're here as well. So let's get back to it. So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email. KFUO at KFUO.org. KFUO at KFUO.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome the Reverend Dr. Rick Stuckwish, President of the Indiana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Stuckwish, welcome to Concord Matters. Yeah, thank you, Brady. Happy to be with you today. So, uh, Dr. Stuckwish, uh, this is our first time together here on Concord Matters. Tell us about yourself and the work of the Saints in the Indiana District. Sure, thank you. Uh, I was elected uh, a year ago, the summer of uh, 2022, so it's uh, been a transition for me. Uh, I've been a pastor in the Indiana District for 27 years, all of those years at Emmaus in South Bend, uh, and that's uh, where we uh, recently moved from uh, to Fort Wayne, where the district office is. Uh, My wife and I are married for 38 years. We have uh, 10 living children, and uh, seven of them are married. we have uh, 17 grandchildren waiting on more to be born, and uh, give thanks to God for his many gifts. And uh, I have the privilege now of being a pastor to the pastors of my district and visiting them, encouraging them, uh, counseling them, uh, working with them uh, to help them in their ministry, and also helping the congregations of the Indiana district uh, to find new pastors when they are um, uh, vacant and without a pastor. And besides that, as you know, uh, every day is different, every week is different, but it's a joy to serve God's people throughout Indiana and uh, the northern part of Kentucky. And it is a joy because Dr. Stuckwish and I started together as district presidents, so it's almost a year ago, uh, Dr. Stuckwish, that we were in that meeting together and saying, hey, we're new to this. You remember this? Oh, I absolutely do. <laughs> and every day is still a bit of a learning curve, uh, but uh, I- I'm starting to feel a little more confident about uh, where I'm at and what I'm doing. So I hope you are also. Yeah, thanks be to God. Every day, Lord have mercy, I think is a good way to say it. Amen. It's a good reminder for you, our, our listeners, too, to not only pray for your pastor, which I tell you often, pray for your other workers, but pray for your district president, depending on what part of the country you're in. Obviously, if you're in Minnesota North, um, I do request your prayers, or anybody, actually, but also for you in the Indiana district, pray for your district president, Dr. Stuckwish, and his family, because it does, um, they join us in all these things, and, and thanks be to God for them. Amen. But 
today we we are in uh, the Augsburg Confession, and we are in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions from Concordia Publishing House. And I have to emphasize this again. Um, this is the second edition. There's more editions out there, and so it might be a little bit different page numbers for all of you out there. Um, we are in the second edition of this. And today, like I said, we're getting to one that makes Lutherans step back and say, wait a second, it says Mass. Something is not quite right. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about this from Dr. Stockwish and what this means for us today. So go to page 47 of the Lutheran Confessions, Article 24 of the Mass, and we'll begin with the note. This article clearly demonstrates Lutheranism's desire to continue not to reject the wholesome, beneficial, and historic worship practices of the Church. Lutheranism retained the traditional form of the Mass, that is, the service of Holy Communion. In many respects, the ceremonies and liturgy of the Lutheran Church were very similar to those of the Roman Church. The difference lay in Lutheranism's rejection of false teaching concerning the Mass, that somehow and without faith, simply by attending and observing the spectacle of the Mass, people could merit the forgiveness of sins. Worst of all was Rome's teaching that a priest saying Mass is actually offering Christ in an unbloody matter to appease God and to secure his favor. Masses became a source of considerable revenue for the church, since people were encouraged to sponsor the saying of a Mass for their living and dead friends and relatives. All this is, an entirely, is entirely contrary to Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper. He gave the church the sacrament as a gift, and blessing to be used in faith by the people of the gospel, as we as we have other pages to reference in that as well. Now, Doctor Stuckwish, uh, there's a lot happening in the 16th century, and I would say still relevant for us today. So, what needs to be known as we begin in the 24th article? Well, this uh, this was a major point of contention between uh, Luther and the and the Roman Church. It was one of the kind of leading edges of the Reformation from pretty early on that uh, Dr. Luther started calling attention to some abuses of the Mass. Uh, some of those were financial abuses, and actually, uh, you know, you mentioned that even in reading the note, that there was a lot of revenue involved in people paying priests to say Masses uh, on a daily basis uh, for them and for their relatives, for even the dead, uh, that supposedly uh, the priest saying a Mass could assist uh, those who were ostensibly in purgatory, to uh, to lessen their years in purgatory, to hasten their um, journey on to heaven. All of this, of course, far removed from the scriptures and very far removed from what um, the Lord's Supper was actually given to be and to do. Uh, Luther talks about several Babylonian captivities of the Mass uh, in his, his writing, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And again, this is very early in his career as a reformer, so to speak. And uh, one of those is the fact that uh, the laity are not being given the blood of Christ in the distribution of the sacrament. They're uh, given the opportunity to receive the body of Christ, but uh, the cup is withheld from them. So that was one of the captivities of the sacrament that he talked about. Another was the way in which uh, the Roman Church had developed um, the theory of transubstantiation as a way of trying to explain the real presence, as we typically refer to it, uh, trying to explain uh, how it is that the body and blood of Christ are present uh, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, And he wasn't actually um, all that worked up about the theory itself, but he did 
oppose very strongly the idea that this theory, this philosophical theory, should be made into a dogma or a doctrine of the church that everyone was required to believe. That's not necessary, nor is it really right or proper or or possible. Besides all that, the theory of transubstantiation, if you understand it, is far more complicated and far more difficult to believe than simply taking Jesus at his word. Uh, Mm. So that was the second captivity of the sacrament. Uh, The third captivity, which was far and away the most egregious, was the uh, teaching and practice of the sacrifice of the Mass. This was a huge issue because it totally turned things upside down and on their head, and it changed, in a sense, everything. And uh, one of the things that I didn't realize until during my seminary studies is that for the Roman Church, especially in Luther's day, the sacrifice of the Mass and the celebration of the Holy Communion were really two entirely different and separate things. Uh, So, for example, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, when the Roman Catholic Church convened in council to address the various uh, questions and concerns that had been raised uh, in the Reformation, they dealt with the Mass as one topic, and actually years later uh, took up the Holy Communion as a separate topic. Uh, That's pretty hard for us as Lutherans to wrap our heads around because for us, when we talk about the Mass or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion or the Sacrament of the Altar, the Breaking of the Bread, all of these different terms that we have and that we use, all of these refer to the whole package deal, the celebration of the sacrament, uh, the giving of thanks to God, the consecration of the sacrament with the Word of Christ, and then the distribution and reception of the body and blood of Christ uh, in the Holy Communion, all of these belong together. And we need to understand that for the Roman Church, both in teaching and in practice, and again, especially at the time of the Reformation, uh, these were separate things. And they regarded the Mass as a sacrifice that was offered on a daily basis at all of these altars all over the Church, in which the priest, by virtue of his ordination, an indelible character that he received in his ordination, was offering up Uh, in an unbloody way, the body and blood of Christ as a sacrifice to the Father. Uh, And while there were some theologians that explained this in a more nuanced and, I suppose you could say, sophisticated way, the common understanding was that this was kind of like a mini-atonement that was happening every time a Mass was said, that this was a sacrifice for actual sins uh, that had been committed, and that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, Um, a matter of receiving forgiveness and receiving the sacrament, but rather simply having the Mass said would avail in some way uh, for people living or dead, whether they were present or not, whether they received the sacrament or not. The priest could, by offering uh, this supposed sacrifice, obtain uh, forgiveness for whoever he designated. So that was the third and greatest captivity of the sacrament, and Luther um, untiringly regales against this, and that is one of the chief things that Melanchthon is then addressing uh, in dealing with in the Augsburg Confession in Article 24. So let's dig in to our uh, actual confession of Article 24, because it it, it does unpack all of what you just said, which is fascinating to be able to look at every aspect. And I encourage you, our listeners, this is. I'm going to say we're just we're just uh, scraping uh, the top of all of this. So I would encourage you to 
to study more on this, um, even beyond our time, because it is fascinating to see the distinctions and also the heart and soul of what the Reformers, what Luther and others, as Dr. Suckwish has already mentioned, um, what their main focus was, which I would argue is a clear conscience for those who heard and received the sacrament. But we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's dig in. We're on page 47, number one of Article 24 of the Mass. Our churches are falsely accused of abolishing the Mass. The Mass is held among us and celebrated with the highest reverence. Nearly all of the usual ceremonies are also preserved, except the parts sung in Latin are interspersed here and there with German hymns. These have been added to teach the people, for ceremonies are needed for this reason alone, that the uneducated be taught what they need to know about Christ. Not only has Paul commanded that a language understood by the people to be used in the church, 1 Corinthians 14, but human law also commanded it. All those able to do so partake of the sacrament together. This also increases the reverence and devotion of public worship. No one is admitted to the sacrament without first being examined. The people are also advised about the dignity and use of the sacrament, about how it brings great consolation to anxious consciences. Anxious conscience, excuse me. So that they too may learn to believe God and to expect and ask from him all that is good. This worship pleases God, Colossians 1. Such as the sacrament nourishes true devotion toward God, therefore it does not appear that the Mass is more devoutly celebrated among our adversaries than among us. So, Pastor, it's clear that they were, they were concerned with keeping the Mass, which is interesting for us in modern-day America. But at the same time, the teaching of the people for the sake of devotion and consolation for anxious consciences, as I mentioned prior, can you break this down? These first nine, uh, the first, the number one through nine. Yeah, there's already a lot of things happening in here, and uh, I want to underscore what you've said about the consolation of anxious or troubled or terrified consciences, because that that uh, reoccurs frequently in our confessions, especially in uh, the Augsburg Confession and its apology, uh, that the gospel brings comfort to troubled consciences through the forgiveness of sins for Christ Jesus' sake. And the proper use of the Lord's Supper uh, is intended to do that, not through some uh, you know, man-manufactured theory of uh, uh, a sacrifice being offered for the forgiveness of sins, but through the distribution of the gifts of God in Christ according to his word, uh, from the sacrifice of the cross, where our Lord offered himself once for all to his people gathered together uh, in his church. So, um, I mean, that is at the heart of all of this. That is one of our foremost chief concerns. Obviously, we have a concern for faithfulness. Uh, everything should be done according to God's word. But God's word has been given to us aiming at this comfort, uh, this um, assurance of the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the forgiveness of sins for those whose consciences have been burdened and troubled and made anxious by the accusations of the law and the consequences of sin. So that's at the heart of all of this. But what Melanchthon starts with is a defense of the Lutherans that by no means have they abolished the Mass. That is not at all what we've done. And uh, Lutherans in the present day who have that opinion or impression are are mistaken. Uh, the Lutherans zealously retained the Mass according to the institution of Christ. Now, part of the problem, of course, is that what the Lutherans meant by the Mass, 
and what uh, the Roman Catholics, at least the, the scholastic theologians, understood when they talked about the Mass were, in a sense, two different things. Because for the Lutherans, the Mass included not only the celebration, the thanksgiving, the consecration, but also the distribution and reception of the body and blood of Christ. Whereas for the Roman Catholics, the Mass really could be considered as a separate uh, kind of activity uh, apart from the distribution and reception of the sacraments. Um, I'm saying this in in pretty broad and simple terms. I'm not trying to misrepresent anything, but but that in simple terms, is simply the fact of the matter. The Lutherans did retain, uh, especially in some places, maybe more so than others, in the cities things were more elaborate than out in the country, for example. But the Lutheran congregations, by and large, retained uh, the ceremonies, the vestments, the furnishings, the the vessels, uh, the order of the Mass, the rites and ceremonies, the rubrics, pretty much retained all of these things. Uh, But the one very striking exception uh, was that Luther removed the explicitly uh, sacrificial language from uh, what is called the canon of the Mass, and this was kind of at the heart of the Roman Catholic celebration. Not that the people necessarily could hear it, because first of all it was in Latin, but it was also uh, kind of whispered at the altar, and so the people maybe were not aware of it, but Luther certainly was as uh, as a priest himself and as a scholar. Uh, and the and the Lutherans stopped using that uh, sacrificial language because it was uh, at odds with the very purpose of the sacrament, which was not to offer a sacrifice to God, but rather for the fruits of our Lord's sacrifice to be given by God to His people through His called and ordained ministers. Uh, so that that the Lutherans retrain, retained, uh, defended, guarded, preserved, taught, and practiced. And they did so with reverence. They did so with dignity. They conducted themselves very um, uh, deliberately and carefully at the Lord's altar uh, out of care and concern for the body and blood of Christ, out of reverence for his word and for his flesh, and also as a way of teaching the people and confessing the faith. Uh, Luther, uh, I mean, sorry, Melanchthon does make that point here that the purpose of ceremonies is really to teach the people so that they understand what's going on, so that they're able to perceive the significance of the sacrament and uh, the comfort and benefit of the gospel in all of these things that are happening um, uh, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So that that's kind of the leading edge here. He does mention the use of German hymns uh, interspersed uh, with the Latin uh, liturgy. And this is something that for us in, you know, modern America is maybe a little hard to wrap our heads around. Uh, The Mass was uh, entirely in Latin prior to the Reformation. There were some exceptional cases here and there, but uh, in Germany and the Roman Roman churches of Germany, the Mass was in Latin. The vast majority of the people did not know Latin, uh, so they really couldn't understand the language that was being used. Uh, Many people are aware of the fact that Luther started writing uh, fairly early uh, hymns in German. Many of those earliest hymns that he wrote were very liturgical in their character and purpose uh, based upon either the Psalms or portions of the liturgy. Uh, Luther inspired others to do the same. And among the Lutherans, it was the practice in some places more than others to utilize those hymns uh, in the celebration of the divine service, as we call it, uh, especially during the distribution of the sacrament but also at other parts in the service as a way of taking 
uh, the Latin uh, of the Mass and conveying it to the people and allowing the people to confess it in a language that they actually understood. And that was a significant part of the Reformation as well. That was a significant change in the celebration of the sacrament and a a very, um, not only noticeable one, but one that actually contributed a great deal to, if I can use this language, the success of the Reformation because the hymns had such power and such staying power among the people. Um, there's, There's lots more that could be said about that. But Melanchthon does here acknowledge that this is a difference in the way that the Lutherans have celebrated the Mass, but it's really the only uh, significant or substantial difference other than removing that uh, sacrificial language that was so prominent in the canon of the Mass. And he's going to get to this further, but I do find it interesting that he's making an argument about we're just as devout in what we're doing up there. Like you said, you mentioned about the priest and and the Concordians, that they were being reverent around the Lord's Supper, even though, like you mentioned before, that there would be a different understanding of what was happening, and the focus was on the receiving as opposed to the actions of the priests. But the reverence that they still had was very true, and that's that's important for us today as well as we look at this. Any any thoughts on that as he's making that argument? Well, yeah, it, that's that's an excellent point. And this was confusing to both the Roman Catholics on the one side and the various uh, Protestant reformers on the other. They really uh, didn't know how to think about Luther and, and those who uh, who followed him, the Lutherans, because for both the Roman Catholics and the Reformed, what what's usually called the real presence, what what I prefer to say, the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament, uh, that confession, that teaching, which is very much given to us by our Lord in his own words and in the sacrament, that teaching went hand in hand with the sacrifice of the Mass. So for the Roman Catholics, they're like, look, if you believe it's the body and blood of Christ, why don't you believe in the sacrifice of the Mass? And for the Reformed, the the Protestant Reformers, they're like, look, if you're rejecting the sacrifice of the Mass, why are you still clinging to this idea that the body and blood of Christ are are truly present in the sacrament? And for us as Lutherans, it's like these things don't stand or fall together. The body and blood of Christ are indeed the sacrifice uh, that was offered once for all upon the cross. I mean, this is the body that was sacrificed for us. This is the blood that was shed for us on the cross. So if you're talking about sacrifice as a noun, of course, this is the body and blood of Christ that is the sacrifice for the sins of the world. But for the Roman Catholics, uh, this was not a noun, but a verb. This was a sacrifice that was being offered for the sins of the people. And uh, we reject that because it's, it's not true. It's not given to us in the scriptures. It's not given to us by our Lord. His body and blood are present in the sacrament to be distributed and received, distributed by his ministers, received by his people for the forgiveness of sins. So anyway, to the point of your question, the reverence and the devotion, the devout celebration of the sacrament by the Lutherans is really based upon a reverence for the word of Christ and a reverence for his holy body and precious blood. We really believe that these things are here. They're on the altar. They're in the priest's hand. They're given into the mouths and bodies of God's people, the body and blood of Christ, the almighty and eternal son of the living God. These are not, this, is, this isn't fun and games. This isn't play acting. This isn't, this isn't the time to be silly or casual or chummy. We're, we're, we're not simply in the presence of God, 
but God himself is present in and with his own body and blood, and he gives himself into our hands, into our mouths, uh, for the forgiveness of sins. So it's a very comforting and blessed thing, but he's not a doormat to wipe our feet on. And we don't, we don't, one of my professors at the seminary years ago said uh, that, uh, you know, you can teach all you want about the body and blood of the of Christ, but if you, if you celebrate the sacrament like you're hawking fish at the market, either nobody's going to believe what you say, or they're going to think you're a fool and an idiot for acting that way. You know, as we, as we, uh, celebrate the sacrament, and as we administer and receive the sacrament, the body and blood of Christ, that calls for the highest devotion and reverence because this is God's own body and blood that are being given and received. So that that's where the reverence comes from, even though the Lutherans categorically rejected uh, the notion of the sacrifice of the Mass as the Roman Catholics taught it and understood it. Well, let's continue on. Um, we are on number ten on page forty-eight, and it and it like it just keeps rolling. I mean, there's so much more we can learn from this. And and as Doctor Stockwish and I talked before, you just wait till we get to the apology. Then it's even longer and more packed full of grace and and God's gifts. So let's continue on number ten. It is clear that for a long time, the most public and serious complaint among all good people is that the Mass has been made base and profane by using it to gain filthy wealth, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Everyone knows how great this abuse is in all the churches. They know what sort of men say Masses, for a fee or an income, and how many celebrate these Masses contrary to canon law. Paul severely threatens those who use a Eucharist in an unworthy manner. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, when our priests were warned about this sin, private masses were discontinued among us, since hardly any private masses were celebrated except for the sake of filthy gain. Pastor, we're going to have to take a break because we're right up to our break time. So uh, we are studying the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 on, uh, excuse me, the Mass, and we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying the Augsburg Confession, Article 24 on the Mass with the Reverend Dr. Rick Stuckwish, District President of the Indiana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Now, Pastor, I want to share this story. When I was at my first parish in Wisconsin, I had a wonderful secretary who had been there for 40 years. She was just this, she was 74, I was 26 when I arrived. It was this wonderful um um, I learned so much from this uh, saint. Now, she's actually still with us, but this saint of the Lord. And she told me when she was a kid that they wanted to make sure the price of wine went up significantly. And so they wanted to make sure that people were just kind of giving towards the wine fund for a communion. And so they actually put a little basket towards the front of church. 
and people would come up when they took communion and they'd throw a quarter in or a dime in. This is probably in the 50s. And they're doing this. And it got to the point where, you know, this is kind of the way they did. They did it for, according to her, a year or two or for quite a while until a person who was newer to the church looked at that and said, what are you guys doing? Are you paying to receive communion like a Catholic? And then it stopped. (laughs) So I don't know if that's the same thing, but tell us more about the filthy gain that Melanchthon talks about. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. It was not terribly uncommon, I think, in various places for the people to contribute something, um, you know, right. when they would receive the communion as a way of uh, paying for the bread and wine that were needed for the celebration of the sacrament. Uh, mm-hmm. In some parts of the world, in some parts of the church today, uh, here in the United States, I mean, obtaining bread and wine is not difficult. We can do it very easily. That's not true in uh, other parts of the world where it's harder to find, especially the wine, and it's much more expensive. And for some of our impoverished brothers and sisters in various parts of the world, uh, this is something they can't take lightly or for granted. I, I mean, I've seen this firsthand. So um, the practice that that, uh, uh, that that dear lady shared with you was not terribly uncommon. Now, one can also understand that the perception might be uh, not such a good one, especially to some inc- someone coming from the outside. And we don't want it to look like we're actually paying for services rendered, that we have to somehow pay for the sacrament. But on the other hand, I mean, in the early church, people would bring bread and wine to church, and those would be taken, and some of that would be given to the poor, and some of that would be used for the celebration of the sacrament. And there was an understanding that the Lord takes our gifts and then uses them to serve us and to accomplish his purposes. But all of this is very, very different than what our confessions are talking about here in terms of filthy gain uh, and abuses of the Mass. Because again, what that woman was describing to you was a kind of payment to cover the cost of bread and wine for those who were receiving the sacrament. And the Masses that we're talking about here are not the Holy Communion. This is not payment that people were making to receive the sacrament. This is payments that were being made to a priest to say the Mass to celebrate the Mass as a sacrifice offered to God for the living and the dead, whether people were present or not. And in fact, when they talk about private Masses, there weren't any other people there. Now, I believe the rules called for at least a server to be present so that it wasn't supposed to be the priest by himself, but in practice it often was, as I understand it, the priest by himself. And even he might not receive the sacrament. I'm not sure how common that was. But again, we, what, what is very hard for us to understand is that this idea of the sacrifice of the Mass was a separate thing from the celebration and reception of the Holy Communion. So people were paying priests to say Masses to obtain forgiveness, or that could be nuanced. And again, I don't want to go into the details, but um, to obtain a benefit for people who were not even present who may not even be alive anymore, who were thought to be in purgatory waiting for a chance to get into heaven. Uh, That's what was going on. So not only was the practice itself abhorrent and contrary to the gospel, but it was a huge moneymaker, a huge moneymaker. Luther contends in various places that the entire Roman church is sort of banked by these private masses that people were paying for. And that, and that he says, now, I mean, this isn't hard to believe, although it maybe isn't the most charitable. He says that's why they don't even want to talk about it, because this was a huge moneymaker. Now, it's easy to point fingers at other people, especially those who lived 400 plus years ago. 
But the reality is we need to guard ourselves against this kind of temptation and danger in our own day as well and ask ourselves, are there things that we're doing in the church today that really have gotten off the beaten path and are off the beam that we're reluctant to let go of because they're great money makers or whatever, they bring crowds in or whatever, um, because we're of the same flesh and blood as those Roman Catholic uh, uh, theologians and, and Christians were back then, and we can fall into similar abuses. That's why it's so important that we constantly study the scriptures, give attention to the word of God, call ourselves daily back to repentance and recognize that our entire confidence, our entire hope rests on the word of our Lord, his precious gospel, and the gifts that he gives to us in his means of grace in holy baptism, holy absolution, and the holy communion. So sorry, getting off on a little homiletics there. But, I, love uh, I love it. I love it. And that's, and that's our goal is to proclaim Christ to your on KFUO, so I'm glad you are. So as we look at this, it's an abuse that is very important for you, our listeners, and for all of us is what, you know, where are some of our idols in the process of this? How many times have we all fallen into similar abuses? And it's not time to justify ourselves. It's time to repent and once again go back to Christ. Not our action, but the action and the fruit that is bore on the cross. So let's continue on because we have quite a bit more to cover here. On number 14 on page 48, we continue. The bishops were not ignorant of these abuses. If they had corrected them in time, there would be now less discord. But until now, they have been responsible for many corruptions seeping into the church. Now, when it is too late, they begin to complain about the church's troubles. That This disturbance has been caused simply by those abuses that were so open that they could no longer be tolerated. There have been great disagreements about the Mass, that is, the sacrament. Perhaps the world is being punished for profaning the Mass for such a long time and for tolerating this in the churches for so many centuries by the very men who were both able and duty-bound to correct the situation. It is written in the Ten Commandments, The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20. But since the world began, nothing that God ever ordained seems to have been so abused for filthy wealth as the Mass. Pastor, as we look at this, what were the abuses of the bishops of that time? Well, I, I mean, I think when he refers to the bishops, which cuts pretty close to home for you and me, especially as district presidents, because oh, man, our, yeah. our office uh, bears uh, very much the same kind of responsibility for the pastors and churches and the conduct of the of the Lord's gifts in the church. I mean, there were various abuses, and I, I mean, the buying and selling of masses uh, was an abuse. I mean, nobody would deny that uh, that kind of thing was abuse. They didn't necessarily want to talk about it, and there was maybe not a motivation to deal with it because it was such a money maker. But, uh, you know, I, I think there was a recognition that the priests were, in many cases, ignorant, that they were not necessarily godly men, that they were not taking care of the churches as they should have been. There was a buying and selling of positions. Uh, I, I mean, I, I hesitate to try to get into it because, uh, I mean, this, this history is a complex one and there were many things going on. I think as far as what our confession is saying here, um, the responsibility of the pastors within their parishes to conduct themselves reverently and uh, faithfully according to the scriptures, to administer the gifts of Christ according to his word, to preach and teach his word faithfully, uh, is then exponentially greater on the part of the bishops, um, the overseers, uh, what we in our 
church called district presidents, uh, the responsibility they have to make sure the pastors are doing these things according to God's word, that they're preaching and teaching God's word, that they're conducting um, the services and administering the sacraments according to God's word. And that kind of supervision, that kind of oversight wasn't happening. The bishops themselves in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, were also in it for the money. And they were buying and selling their positions. And they were getting involved in worldly affairs and worldly politics uh, to the detriment and neglect of the Lord's church. And uh, I mean, I think at every level of the church, each of us within our own place, our own calling and station, need to take seriously the responsibility that we've been given for the faithful conduct of our office. It's not always easy. It's often not fun. But it's necessary to the integrity of the church and to the integrity of the ministry and finally to the integrity of the gospel that is preached and administered for the consolation and comfort of troubled consciences. That, again, is is always what we're aiming at. Um, not just for its own sake, but because it's what our Lord has given to us in his word. And we want to be faithful that, to that word. We need to be faithful to that word for the sake of the gospel, which is why he does everything that he does. Now, I find it particularly sobering that Melanchthon offers here. This is part of our confession that many of the troubles that the church and the world were suffering were because of the abuse and neglect of the Mass, the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ, and the the lack of um, oversight that was provided by the bishops in that day. Uh, I think this way of thinking, which again is part of our teaching and confession as Lutherans on the basis of the Holy Scriptures, this kind of thinking is pretty foreign to us in our day. The idea that the world suffers, that the church suffers, that abuses develop and increase because of a mishandling a misadministration of the Lord's gifts in the divine service, a mishandling of his word and sacrament. I don't think people think that way at all. And I fear that, you know, the church is probably uh, pretty ripe for uh, a discipline from the Lord because we have not taken seriously the reverence that is required in preaching and teaching his word and administering his gifts. So again, the indictments that were leveled against the Roman church in the 16th century are not, uh, you're not, they're not in our confessions, and we don't study our confessions for the sake of pointing our fingers at those folks, but rather as a way of calling ourselves to integrity, to faithfulness, to repentance, and to faith in the words of Christ and the things that he's given us uh, to administer and receive. All I can say to that is, Lord, have mercy. So let's continue on page uh, 48, number 21, as it gets into some more fun theological um, understanding that uh, we have to always watch for today as well. Number 21. And the opinion has added that infinitely increased private masses. It states that Christ, by his passion, made satisfaction for original sin and instituted the mass as an offering for daily sins, both venial and mortal. From this opinion has arisen the common belief that the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing the outward act. Then they begin to argue about whether one Mass said for many is worth as much as a special Masses for individuals. This resulted in an infinite number of Masses. With this work, people wanted to obtain from God all they needed. In the meantime, trust in Christ and true worship was were forgotten. 
I'm going to stop there because that's a lot to unpack um, as <laughs> yep. we look at, you know, simply by performing the outward act. Now, Pastor, there is some fancy Latin terms for such things. Do you want to break this down for us? Sure. Uh, I mean, the phrase you're referring to is ex opera operato, by the working of the work. And this uh, this is developed at much greater length in the Apology, uh, Article 24, as, as you mentioned or alluded to earlier. Uh, and unfortunately, that phrase and the critique of that phrase uh, have been misunderstood among Lutherans um, in our in our current day, so that there uh, sometimes is a lack of confidence in the Word of Christ and in His body and blood, uh, and there's a greater emphasis on faith as a work of the people uh, than than is appropriate. So we don't want to lose faith because faith is necessary for the receiving of Christ's gifts and benefiting from them. But the sacrament does not depend upon our faith. The body and blood of Christ do not depend upon our faith. The word of Christ does not depend upon our faith. It's quite the opposite. Our faith rests upon the words and promises of Christ. Our faith clings to the word of God and the water of baptism. Our faith clings to and receives the body and blood of Christ in with and under the bread and wine and the Lord's Supper on the basis of his word. But again, what we have to understand is what, what Melanchthon is really addressing and what the Lutherans were addressing with the with this critique is that the working of the work that they're talking about here, the outward act, was not even the reception of the sacrament. It was simply the celebration of the Mass, the saying of the Mass, the supposed offering of the sacrifice of the Mass, whether anyone was present or not. And the benefit that this supposedly provided not only for the living who may or may not be present, but even for the dead. That's the outward act that they're talking about. And uh, the point is that, no, that in itself is not where the benefit is to be found. It is certainly not where the benefit is to be gained or obtained. Rather, the celebration of the sacrament is given to us by Christ. It's a work of God through his minister for the benefit of his people. And it is it is administered for the sake of giving the body and blood of Christ to his Christians to eat and drink in faith with thanksgiving for the forgiveness of sins. So it's in the reception of the sacrament in the Holy Communion that the forgiveness is distributed that was obtained for us by the work of Christ on the cross. And the body and blood of Christ are received by all of the communicants, whether they believe it or not. The benefit of that body and blood, the forgiveness of sins for life and salvation, that is received and embraced by those who receive the sacrament in faith, in the confidence and trust of Christ's word. And so that's what we want to emphasize, but not as though the sacrament itself depended on our faith. The sacrament is the sacrament by the administration of the sacrament with the word of Christ. Whether the priest or the people believe it or not, it is the word of Christ that does the work. But the benefits of the sacrament are received in faith by those who receive the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament uh, according to his word. So that, that's the, the, the point to be made there. When, when you're looking at the Mass as something that is said and offered by the priest for the living and the dead, that's where you get into this argument over, well, if one Mass is good, then lots of Masses are better. But is one Mass for lots of people as good as lots of Masses for one person, or what's the mathematics here? All of those kind of questions and arguments, which were also part of the financial and economic considerations at work here, all uh, derive from a false theology and a false understanding in which it's not the sacrament given for us Christians to eat and to drink that is in view, 
but this supposed offering of a sacrifice by the priest at the altar for those who are present or not present, for those who are living or dead. So hopefully that helps to unpack that a bit. It's it's wonderful. So let's keep going. Uh, we're receiving so much, uh, uh, we're so enriching here, Doctor Stuckwish. But let's keep moving on. Uh, we're at number forty, page forty-eight, number twenty-four. Our teachers have warned that these opinions depart from Holy Scripture and diminish the glory of the passion of Christ. For Christ's passion was an offering and satisfaction, not only for original guilt but also for all, all other sins, as it is written. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Hebrews 10. Also, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, Hebrews 10. It is an unheard of innovation in the church to teach that by his death, Christ has made satisfaction only for original sin and not for all other sin. So it is hoped that everybody will understand that this error has been rebuked for good reason. Scripture teaches that we are justified before God through faith in Christ, when we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Now, if the Mass takes away the sins of the living and the dead simply by performing it, justification comes by doing Masses and not of faith. Scripture does not allow this. One observation I have here, Dr. Suckwish, is that, for example, we were on Good Works just a few articles ago, vast majority of that article speaks about justification by faith. You know, so you're thinking that he's going to give a whole list of what you can do for a good work, and he speaks about faith. Same thing in this article. We could talk a long time about what is the body and blood, what is the mass, what is, you know, all this, but he always brings it back to justification by faith, specifically here, because if there's another way to be justified, like the mass, then Christ would die for no purpose. And so it's just wonderful bringing us always back to that throughout the confessions. Your thoughts or other insights you have? Well, no, I think, I think you're exactly right. Um, I mean, everything centers around the justification that uh, is ours through faith in Christ Jesus because of the work that he has done, the life that he lived, the death that he offered, his resurrection from the dead. That, that's where our justification and our righteousness are found. Christ is our justification and our righteousness, as well as our sanctification, our holiness, our redemption. Uh, everything is in him. And the gospel is identified and characterized by the fact that it glorifies Christ by honoring him for all of this that he has done purely out of grace, uh, given to us by the Father for our redemption, giving himself into death for our for our sins and, and rising again for our justification. Everything centers in him. So the gospel that comforts troubled consciences with the word and gifts and forgiveness of Christ also glorifies Christ. And those are the, the twin markers of the gospel throughout our confessions, especially in the, the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, that the gospel glorifies Christ and, tr- and comforts troubled consciences. And so that's what they want to emphasize. And especially because of the crass kind of opinions that were very prominent uh, in teaching, but also in practice and common understanding, the idea that a mass was somehow offered to obtain forgiveness of sins, um, this, this clearly contradicts the plain teaching of the Scripture that there's one sacrifice for sin that ends all sacrifice for sin, and that is the death of Christ upon the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to that, and they derived their benefit from the Word of God and from that cross that was to come. 
in our in our New Testament era to the close of the age, uh, the sacraments are not sacrifices that are offered to obtain forgiveness, but they are sacraments that are given to bestow and distribute the forgiveness of sins that was obtained once for all by the the sacrificial death of the Son of God upon the cross uh, and uh, manifested to the world in his resurrection from the dead. Now, I should say again that for the for the better theologians, um, there was there was certainly more nuance to this. There was, it was more sophisticated. It was not as crass as it was commonly, uh, you know, understood. And especially in the centuries since the Reformation, it's not like Roman Catholics also can't read the letter to the Hebrews and see that oh yeah, there's there's only the one sacrifice for sin and there are no others. So they do try they they do try to address that and explain the sacrifice of the mass in a more um, sophisticated way but it doesn't really address or correct the underlying problem, which is that the whole purpose of the sacrament has been turned on its head. And again, I know I've repeated this a number of times, but we really can't understand this article or its critique without understanding that when we're talking about the Mass as it was understood, taught, and practiced by the Roman Catholics, especially in the 16th century, we're really not dealing with the Mass as the Lutherans understood it, that is to say the entire celebration of the Holy Communion, including the distribution and reception of the sacrament. But we're talking about what the priest did at the altar, often by himself, without anybody there, uh, going through um, the language of the liturgy, as we might say, including the canon of the Mass with its very explicit sacrificial language, and ostensibly offering the body and blood of Christ to the Father in order to obtain forgiveness that could then be assigned and distributed simply by an act of the will of the priest, uh, his intentions, um, his designated you know, beneficiaries, uh, whether living or dead, whether present or not. That's, that's really what Melanchthon is aiming at. And that, that is a Babylonian captivity of the of the Lord's words and his body and blood, which we, we simply cannot tolerate. Scripture does not tolerate it. And that's why I love how it ends um, in number 29. Scripture does not allow this. And this is where a lot of times you, our listeners as Christians, and, and we as pastors, or just any, any of the baptized, that there's times you're like, well, that makes sense to me in my mind, but Scripture doesn't allow it. And that goes with so many things in our world that often were countercultural. That like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, that sometimes you have to say, Scripture doesn't allow this. Mm-hmm. And we have to allow the Lord to lead us and guide us to trust in his word and trust in his promises. Now, I don't want to get into that too much, but this is another clear example of that. So let's get to number 30 here. Um, and we'll continue on because I love the Ambrose quote at the end of this uh, paragraph. But Christ commands us, do this in remembrance of me, Luke 22. Therefore, the Mass was instituted so that those who use the sacrament should remember in faith the benefits they receive through Christ and how their anxious consciences are cheered and comforted. To remember Christ is to remember his benefits. It means to realize that they are truly offered to us. It is not enough only to remember history. The Jewish people and the ungodly also remember this. Therefore, the Mass is to be used for administering the sacrament to those who need consolation. As Ambrose says, because I always sin, I always need to take the medicine. I think, personally, uh, Dr. Stuckwish, that paragraph is just pure gold. I think I need to repeat 
in my own life, but also in all my teaching and preaching, that paragraph just hits the nail on the head. What do you What do you have for us? Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's it's beautiful, and that quote from Ambrose is beautiful, as you said. And uh, I mean, this is an important point. Christ says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Now, interestingly, that phrase, that language that our Lord uses, is also susceptible to lots of misunderstanding. And here in the Augsburg Confession, we emphasize the way in which the people are to remember Christ and his work. And this is not just a matter of knowing the history, the stories, but actually taking to heart that what he did uh, was for the forgiveness of our sins, for our justification, for our atonement, redemption, and our salvation. And that's absolutely true. What What's interesting to me, and uh, I think uh, you may have had Dr. Nagel at the seminary years ago. I, I wasn't privileged to have him as a professor, but I enjoyed getting to know him as I was working on my dissertation uh, and interviewed him for that, had some oral history interviews with him. And it was in that context that he just threw this out there for me to go check out and and look and learn for myself, that in the scriptures, the remembering that is done is usually, in fact, almost always, not people remembering God, but God remembering his people. I mean, this kind of language is very, very prominent. And and I would suggest and argue that the remembering that we do in the Lord's Supper really depends upon and flows out of the fact that Christ remembers us in the sacrament by what he does, what he says, what he gives, uh, all of which distribute what he has done for us once for all by his cross and in his resurrection. So that when his pastors administer the supper, when the church celebrates the supper, they're doing what the Lord has given us to do in order that he, through that, uh, would remember his people uh, with his word and with his body and blood uh, given and shed for the forgiveness of sins on the cross, uh, given and poured out for us to eat and to drink in the supper. And so I would argue that doing this in remembrance of him uh, and for the people to receive the sacrament in this kind of remembrance, not just a knowledge of the history, but a faith in Christ and what he has said and done, that all hinges and depends upon the faithful preaching and teaching of his word, the proclamation of his death until he comes, as St. Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Luther takes that as an imperative, not as an indicative statement, but as an imperative. In other words, as often as you celebrate the sacrament, you must proclaim the death of Christ. And that's really part of what Melanchthon is getting at here, that the celebration of the sacrament is an occasion and an opportunity that must include the preaching of Christ, what he has done and what it is for. Otherwise, the people can't remember him in the right way. We can't remember him in faith apart from that preaching of his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So that in order to do this in remembrance of him, really is to say that the sacrament is administered in and with the preaching of Christ, in and with the proclamation and teaching of his word. And that's what the sacrament itself hinges up, uh, hinges on and depends upon. And again, this is, this is done. It's celebrated. The, the bread and wine are consecrated with the word of Christ to be his body and blood in order that they would be distributed and received by his Christians, that us Christians uh, should eat and drink this body and blood of Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for the forgiveness of sins and for the comforting of troubled consciences with that forgiveness and for life and salvation in body and soul with Christ, now by faith and forever in the resurrection. That's what this is all about. And uh, the faithfulness uh, really comes from Christ himself and it is entrusted 
uh, to his church and especially to his ministers to receive what he has given and to hand it over faithfully to the church week after week and from one generation to the next. And the responsibility that we, for example, have, uh, Brady, as district presidents, is to support and encourage our pastors and our congregations in doing this and to assist them in doing this. And where they start to drift from this uh, center, uh, to call them back to it, to call them back to Christ. That's, that's what this article is confessing and teaching. And we do well to take it to heart because this is still the heart and life of the church uh, and uh, the ministry. And this is still where we find the heart of the gospel in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ given for us uh, for the forgiveness of sins. All I can say to that is amen. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Rick Stuckwish of the Indiana District of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod clearly confessing the truth of the Mass from the Augsburg Confession. President Stuckwish, thank you for being our guest. Uh, it's been my pleasure, Brady. Thanks for having me on your, uh, on your show. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm.